best research ideas and, and research projects that I've done have always come from questions, research questions that I really, really want to know the answer to. More, actually, that I am convinced I already know the answer to them. Yeah. So the, the most interesting data that I've got has been when I, I'm, I'm convinced that I know this thing that other people don't know, um, and I just want to prove it to everybody by collecting this data. Yeah. And I swear that the honestly, the this is honestly the truth. I'm wrong most of the time. <laughs> I've never been right about one of these burning. You know, one of these. I've been very. Uh, I have, I've had, sometimes I've had a lot of a, a high degree of confidence yeah. in uh, a, a particular idea that I've had. Um, and, you know, I've done the experiment, try and prove myself right and say, hey, we had this hypothesis and look, we were right. And actually it was, it ended up not being the correct idea, um, but in a very interesting way. Um, and as a result of that, it's been useful. And these mm. people often think that, you know, when you hypothesize something that turns out not to be true, the, 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 the data and the, 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 the uh, everything behind the experiment isn't publishable. That's just not true. Um, uh, don't dress it up. I would say in the, in those situations, if you know, if your hypotheses turned out not to be false, say that we made these hypotheses and they were wrong, and we've shown that they were that categorically. You know, you might need to collect a lot of data. You might need to do Bayesian inference to show that your you know your your you, you can, your hypotheses aren't supported. You know, there are multiple ways in which an experiment can't work. But, um, you know, if you have this, uh, if you have a, 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 a hypothesis that just didn't work out, I think that's still very interesting because it's very likely that other people would have think, thought like you and you're definitely going to be contributing something to science by saying, hey, we had this hypothesis and, and actually... Well, thank you for coming onto the podcast. Um, so you've said that your work involves trying to figure out how we learn general patterns, new vocabulary and layout of um, unfamiliar places. What is it about learning a memory that interests you? Uh, well, I've always considered uh, learning to be a very fundamental aspect of uh, brain function, um, kind of in a way that, that, that some other types of cognitive function aren't. So... Um, for instance, uh, people may take the view that perceptual processing is very fundamental uh, since, it, uh, generally speaking, most other thoughts and behaviours depend on uh, perceptual processing in the first instance. Um, however, I think it's kind of often forgotten that uh, in a very real sense, everything that we do depends on learning in some form, including perception. Um, you know, children aren't born with a, uh, a fully functioning visual system um, uh, that, um, you know, sighted adults take for granted. Uh, instead, they have to learn to see in, in a very real sense. And it, the same goes for all of our other senses. Um, with regards to memory specifically, um, I guess I've always had questions about um, how our brains go about storing information. Um, I've always considered it amazing that a physical system, uh, like a computer or a brain, can, can uh, encode information uh, gained from its environment with like a high degree of reliability. Uh, like, like, you know, 
how is this how how is that achieved like well, the question is like how, how do you do this um uh and we can you know what's amazing about it is that we can commit information to memory so quickly um on the fly uh, having experienced just a very brief event, we can remember that event for almost an indefinite period of time uh, in some cases. Um, so, uh, yeah, considering the abilities of both uh, humans and non-human animals, I guess it's clear that we have this capacity to store this vast amounts of information, but at the same time, uh, there are these uh, very obvious limits that are, that are really interesting to, to, to learning in memory. Um, uh, you know, we forget things all the time, and, and uh, I, I think it's quite interesting to consider what it, what is it that, the, what is it that discriminates, or what's the difference between uh, the things that we learn quite reliably, quite easily, uh, but then the other things that we would forget um, very readily. Um, uh, so yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. In memory. So go ahead. Cool. Um. So, what was it then that got you first interested in this sort of study? Um. I guess for the reasons I've uh, the reasons I've always I've always had the, had those questions uh, in at the back of my mind. You know, what is what is it? What is a memory? What what is what is a memory made out of? Um. Uh, it, you know, information. It feels like that that we would store in our in our minds in our, in our brains it feels like something that's quite um intangible but it's obviously something very fundamental um uh physically i mean it's physically fundamental um and i i, I really do like information theory i i'm quite a big fan of information theory uh, this field of mathematics and, and and probability and computer science that kind of describes um, how information is can be quantified, it's stored and transmitted. Um, uh, so I've always been very interested in that. And um, I, I guess I uh, that interest kind of, you know, coupled with my, my, my interest in psychology and neuroscience meant that I, I, I this you know, learning and memory was always something that was I, I, I was going to was going to appeal to me. Um, so, yeah, I think I became interested in it right from the point where I was interested in, in, in psychology and thinking about psychology and neuroscience. Uh, as I say, it, it, it feels like a very fundamental aspect to um, how we operate in the world. Um, uh, we in some way everything that we do depends on, on on learning and memory so your first degree was in psychology and music technology at Keele University why did you choose that degree specifically mm. well as to why I chose a dual honours degree like a, this where, where you could do a two complete mix two completely yeah. different yeah. degrees I, I think the short answer to that is uh, when going to uni, I simply couldn't decide what to do. So um, uh, I, I was, and, and indeed I still am, interested in quite a few different uh, uh, subjects. And I found that at Kiel, you could uh, 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 you could mix any two subjects within certain bounds. You could mix any two subjects together. Um, and 
they didn't need to have any crosstalk between them. Um, and I never expected there to be a crosstalk between music tech and psychology. Mm. Um, I, I kind of was doing it because, I, as I say, I couldn't decide what to do and I had an interest in both of them. Um, uh, but uh, I was surprised. I, throughout both, you know, throughout my degree and after, even more so after when I was studying for a master's and when I was uh, in my work uh, throughout my PhD in, in the work that I do now, I, I was surprised that, you know, there are a lot of things particularly that I, I learned about um, in my uh, music technology studies that really, really heavily applied to um, uh, psychology, not so much the, the, the theoretical theoretical aspects of, of, of uh, psychology and neuroscience, but more about the methods. So that is a lot that I learned as part of my music technology degree that, um, uh, you know, really helped me uh, understand various different methods, um, particularly digital signal processing and uh, 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 things like that, that I use as a neuroscientist, as a cognitive neuroscientist yeah. all the time. Um, so that was very good. Why did I choose music tech and psychology specifically well i for the longest period of time if you had asked me what i was going to do when at uni before i went to uni i would have said uh physics like you know i i'm always interested in things that are like very fundamental and physics you know you can't you often can't get very more fundamental than that I, uh, well uh, when it's to do with fundamental yeah. to do with our universe um but i so i so i was always very interested in physics but um uh, yeah, I think that, uh, and, and for the longest time, I considered doing a, a medical degree as well. Um, but, you know, I, I, I kind of was, when it came to the crunch and I was filling out my UCAS application and thinking what I wanted to do at university, um, you know, I was reading a lot about psychology at the time uh, and, and psychiatry. I was thinking a lot about, um, uh, I had picked up this interest in music uh, quite late, actually, I think that you know, I, I became really interested in in music when I was um, when I was uh, when I started secondary school. Uh, before then, I thought I was terrible at it and I didn't like enjoy it. Um, uh, and I picked up this love, and I kept kind of, you know, I, it, it was it was it was it was definitely a passion for me. Yeah. Uh, so when it got to that stage of my kind of life, and my, you know, I was thinking what to do. It was one of the options that I put down on my my UCAS, UCAS application, probably without that much thought. Yeah. Um, it, these two degrees that I wanted to go for, and and, and while I was at university, um, and I was doing the music tech and psychology degrees, um, you know, psychology definitely uh, uh, was something that I was. I, I liked both both of both subjects, but um, in terms of you know I applying the scientific method and the, the, the things that I was doing at university, the ambition and the goals that psychology and neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience has, I think that really struck with me probably a little bit more than the, than the music tech did at the time, um, So, which is why I stuck with that. Yeah. So after graduating um, from Kiel University, you came to the University of Sussex, where you studied an MSc in cognitive neuroscience. And your dissertation looked at how our brains process different colours. What were the most challenging aspects of your MSc and how did you overcome them? Mm, that's a good question. So um, I think that the, the thing that I 
found found most challenging as part of my MSc was was that uh, MSc dissertation project that I had to do. Um, f for that, um, I had to I was I had some experience with computer programming before um, my masters. I, I did that as part of my undergraduate degree a little bit, um, uh, which was for music technology. Actually, that's what, one thing that was quite useful yeah. about um, that degree. It gave me a, a bit of background in programming. But um, when I came to do the MSc, uh, I was the my MSc project it was an fMRI project, a, fun, uh, a functional magnetic resonance imaging project about how we perceive colors, as you say. And uh, there was a lot of programming involved, computer programming involved um, in that, um, in processing the data. Um, and, you know, I think it's like whenever you start, you're under pressure to, to, to do, to, uh, to finish a project, to, to, to have a final piece of, of written work finished at the end of a, you know, a, a couple of months, uh, within a couple of month period. Um, you need to... Uh, you know, really get going, and uh, you, you know, it's it's kind of I guess like learning any language. You know, there's this points where there is just utter confusion, and <laughs> um, uh, you you have literally no idea what you're doing. You're kind of trying everything to get something to work, um, uh, to get the computer to do what you want it to do, um, and uh, you know, have, having you know, I think uh, there's probably something about my personality that. I don't necessarily give up very easily. So, um, I, you know, it was extremely frustrating, but just sat a computer trying to, 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 to program uh, was, was, was kind of extremely challenging, probably the most challenging aspect, but also very fun and rewarding because once it did work, you were like, hey, you know, you could, uh, it was like something that was completed and finished. Um, and you would learn something and it's, that's always been something that, that's been very useful. Um, the other, I, I think that my, part of my undergraduate degree, the best thing that it gave me was this ability to, uh, or this, you know, I, it trained me in, in being able to read a, a bunch of different scientific papers and, and um, kind of evaluate them on based on kind of what I thought, like what was going on in those papers, you know, different lines of research that maybe were contradictory, trying to kind of reconcile this in my head. I spent a lot of time doing that during my undergraduate. So, um, and, and I, I, I developed that. That was also, it's also a hard thing to do. You know, if there's a debate within a field, you know, you want to see what it is that could reconcile that debate. Uh, and so that's difficult. But, um, uh, you know, I guess during my MSc, I was very, as, as, again, exercising that muscle of, of you know, kind of um, interpreting different strands of research and reconciling them with each other. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, as well, the workload for the MSc was it was full on. Like it's you know there was there were periods where I was just you know going to lectures, reading every now and again, and uh, things were 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 relatively okay. But I it, it, yeah every you're assessed, assessed every month, which was every couple of months. So it's uh, it, it wasn't easy going out by any means. I don't think. Um, how come you didn't go straight into a PhD? Uh, how come I didn't go? Uh, because I guess when I finished my undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And in fact, I didn't know that, I probably didn't know that a PhD was an option or like I wasn't, it wasn't on my radar as much as, you know, I, I thought. I, I, of course, I did know that, you know, there were academic jobs 
and that you could there were people employed at universities who did research uh, as well as teaching um but i i wasn't very clued up on you know kind of this i i the the, the academic uh, career paths um uh, particularly with regards to research I, I i didn't know that much about them um and i also i don't think that my undergraduate I mean, it was there were it's very it was very broad, especially because I did two different degrees, uh, kind of rolled into one. Um, I didn't feel like I had a fully fleshed out background in the kinds of things that I was really interested in: cognitive neuroscience um, and and neuroimaging. And, and and I think for that reason, um, I um, I wanted to, to delve into that a little deeper, which is why I decided to do the MSc. I thought that doing a master's first would kind of help me, not necessarily to go into academia, but maybe it would be enjoyable. And if I wanted to get a job outside of academia or whatever, then it would be useful in that respect. Um, and I thought that, you know, it would give me a bit more of a, a view of if I did want to go into academia, it would give me a bit more of a view of what was out there. I think I was right about that. So very, very early on, it was talked about. It, uh, we had some very good lectures by uh, some of the uh, conveners of the, the MSc course that I was on, um, descri describing kind of, you know, that there is these, there are these PhD positions that are out there and you can approach your a supervisor about doing your own PhD, a PhD of your own making if you wanted to as well. Um, and I, you know, I, it was something that did start to appeal to me more and more. Um, and I, I, I was lucky in that I, um, I applied to one PhD project um, and uh, I, w I got it. I, I don't know whether I would recommend to other people to apply for an advertised position unless it was really really something that you were interested in because you know uh, if you're if you're really interested in a phd in doing a phd you know in, in a way it's it's kind of what the, the best thing one of the best things that you could possibly do is uh, approach somebody like think about what it is that you want to do and approach someone and say hey these are my ideas and you can flesh out those ideas in a bit more detail with a supervisor um, but I was really lucky, so I, I started. I approached my current, my my current boss and my my uh, PhD supervisor um, uh, about a project in memory, uh, learning and memory, something that I was interested in. Um, I, I, for my MSc project, this was this would have been for my MSc dissertation project, um, and uh, it just so you know. It, it, as, as a result of speaking to uh, uh, to him, I, I realized that you know that there was P that this PhD that he was advertising and that was it was something that I was specifically interested in. So I I I, I kind of applied uh, for that, and um, uh, this was this would have been fairly early on in my P in my uh, uh, in my masters, but I applied. It would have been yeah. I started in February. It was would have been in oh, sorry I started in September. Um, and it would have been in February that I was applying for this PhD yeah. and found out, yeah. And what was your um, PhD looking at? So it started off um, looking at um, uh, a phenomenon in 
in the in the memory research at the time in the in the the literature at the time known as the boundary extension effect um which is the idea is that if you see a if you see a if you see a photograph let's say a flower against a wall um and um you know you try and remember that a week later you try and bring it into mind rather than just remembering the photograph in the wall you'll off people will often and not just remember that they saw this this flower against a wall, they'll remember a wider context. They mm-hmm. might often say, oh, well, I remember that there was a bit of sky above the, the wall, even though that wasn't in the actual, in the, in, in the original image. And they'll add this, these embellishments, I guess, to their memory. And so they'll, 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 their, the embellishments will give some details about the, the, a wider context that they've kind of brought into the photo or to this this image that they were asked to study in the first place um which is quite interesting it, it, it does tell us something about how our memories work or how our how our learning and memory system works however um quite early on very early on uh, even before i started the phd itself uh, it kind of became clear that maybe the the experiments that um uh, kind of showed this boundary extension effect weren't necessarily uh, uh, very on solid ground. Mm. They weren't, you know, the effects weren't weren't, weren't super replicable. Um, so for that reason, we kind of decided, well, let's let's just try something else that's related, but more interesting, you know, would would uh, is is perhaps on a bit firmer ground. And in the I, I thoroughly endorse this. The attitude that both my uh, supervisor and I had um, was. You know, let's do what interests us. Have a lot of different plates spinning, yeah. um, various different projects that don't necessarily um, uh, can be kind of vaguely tied together, kind of uh, related in 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 some way. They have to be about the same thing. After all, I have to write a thesis about them uh, that that made sense and was coherent yeah. about a single topic. But um, that didn't, you know, that didn't stop me from exploring what I wanted to do. So I did three major projects as part of my PhD, uh, all of which I was lucky, but all of the which were neuroimaging projects. Um, and uh, uh, th- they were they were related to each other, but not necessarily leading on one on top of one from the other, um, w- which worked well for me. I, I was able to bring them together in a thesis and kind of show how they related. Uh, but at the same time, explore lots of different parts of the literature explore lots of different ideas and I was I didn't feel constrained um yeah so since starting academia do you think that research in your field has made progress in understanding how we learn new information yes absolutely so so it 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 definitely feels like sometimes research can go very slowly and there are there's a lot of um uh Sometimes it feels like there's a lot of stalemates uh, uh, between different theory theoretical accounts. Some people will say one thing, and other people and other group will say another thing. But you know, looking back over, you know, even long before I I've been in academia, um, there are ideas that have persisted and have um, uh, they they've, they're, it's clear that the only reason that they've persisted is that they have some aspect of them. That helps us predict um, uh, that are useful for predicting new data, new observations, uh, and they wouldn't do that unless they had some sort of some some some, 
semblance of truth or, or, or uh, kind of uh, uh, some, something about them that was useful, I guess. Um, so, yeah, we have come a long way, I think. Um, and it is easy, it, when you're working in academia, I think it is kind of easy to forget um, that. But we, we have come a long way. Um, there are, um, particularly like, we, we've learned a lot from, I think neuroscientists have learned a lot from, uh, from, from computer scientists uh, very recently. You know, the, 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 there's a lot that uh, both uh, uh, machine learning can teach uh, cognitive neuroscience about how learning and memory might work. As, and, and it really has always been the case that computer scientists have, have learned a lot from neuroscience as well. There's, there's this amazing synergy between these two fields. Um, and, and in the last few years, it really has. Uh, you know, there are now these very detailed, intricate models of how we learn uh, the layouts of new environments, how we learn general knowledge, and by general knowledge, I mean generalizable knowledge. So uh, knowledge that allows us to uh, uh, kind of respond to situations and events that we've never come across before, problem-solving knowledge, I guess. Um, there, there's all of these models that, uh, you know, uh, we've built and they, 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 they work um, in some ways. And they are directly inspired by, or they depend on um, uh, new uh, learning algorithms and, and methods that have, have, have only recently been introduced um, uh, by, you know, uh, uh, as a result of developments in machine learning. Um, uh, as well, uh, you know, <laughs> there are, there are we, we, we've learned so much um, in the last 10, 20 years, just from pure neuroscience, like uh, uh, about, uh, you know, how, how we encode information. When you take a step back, the, 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 the progress that we have made is quite staggering, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that we've come a long way and we continue to. But as I say, it's often easy to to forget about that or to overlook the progress that has been made. So what do you enjoy the most about your work and what aspects do you dislike? I guess I enjoy the, uh, I work, I love working with data. I love um, uh, designing a new experiment to answer a specific question. I, I, I do enjoy collecting the data, um, uh, uh, you know, trying to, uh, there's something appealing about once you've designed an experiment to test a particular research question, um, uh, you actually, when you're collecting the data, getting a sense of how it is to that people are responding to the the uh, the uh, the task that you've developed, for instance, that to, to answer this question is that in itself is very revealing above and beyond the data that you get. Um, hearing what people have to say, I think, is quite important. Um, and the you know there's something uh, very satisfying about uh, having collected a whole bunch of data, then going to analyze it and seeing how usually how wrong you were about <laughs> your initial ideas about this this kind of uh, topic, uh, and uh, but but wrong in interesting ways. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that's, that that's very appealing. 
Um, the, uh, the projects, the, the aspects that I don't like, uh, projects take a very long time to run, uh, especially neuroimaging projects. Um, and uh, it's, it's a long slog to, to, from the initial conception of a study to getting it published. Um, it's, and, and, and it just requires quite a lot of, it requires just a lot of work um, and uh, persistence, uh, you know, being able to get these things out there. Um, uh, that doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. Um, they're challenging aspects uh, and it makes it all the more rewarding when you do finally get papers published. Um, but uh, it, it, it is a challenge. I, I, I also, there are, there are other aspects. So, you know, I, applying for grants is something that every research scientist, I guess, will have to, to, to uh, um, in academia, will have to, to, to contemplate and, and look at doing. It is a different skill to the skills that we are trained on as research scientists. I think generally, I, you could consider it as part of that training, but and it is, I guess. But um, it's a different set of skills to designing a well uh, thought out, um, uh, a well designed study. It's 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 different to producing one of those study experiments and you know all of the hypotheses behind them, and collecting the data rigorously and 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 testing it rigorously, testing your hypotheses rigorously. That's a different set of skills to. Um, uh, to applying for research grants and um, uh, you know forging an independent like a, a career path for yourself and uh, 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 and gaining the research funding to do that, um, I, I I probably enjoy the the doing the applying for research grants less because it takes time away from the stuff that I really really mm. enjoy, but it's a necessary part of the job. Um, and it is still fun to, it makes you develop your ideas very well, I guess. Uh, it, you know, it makes you refine them and, and it makes them, it makes you ensure that your ideas and your, the, the things that you're proposing to do in your work are going to be most relevant and useful to other people. Um, uh, so yes, uh, kind of writing those research grants, I prefer less to the actually doing the research and the analyses but it is it is a necessary part of it uh and, and yeah again I, I, could, I guess i could rank all of the things that i all of the things that i have to do in terms of my preferences for them i i, I, I would have said maybe writing introduction and discussion sections doesn't quite rank, rank for a method for a paper doesn't really write rank that highly because you know i like the the results the results are great yeah you know, once you're, you're writing the results it's 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 an answer and the discussion it's still but but it's an important part and it's it's nice to get your ideas on the page um so uh you know i i, I don't mind the writing either yeah so your work um, appears to involve quite a bit of um, computer programming. What kind of applications have you made? I, I've, I've done some work in um, uh, memory precision. So this is this idea that you can um, not just test someone's memory to the extent that have they, do they remember this word or have they forgotten this word? If you read out a whole bunch of different words, this is a very kind of classic 
experiment in, 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 in psychology research, read out a whole bunch of different words, uh, what proportion do you remember, kind of, um, and it, it, to score up performance on that kind of test, you would say, has this person remembered this word, yes or no? Um, and while I was doing one of um, uh, my a postdoc, at a, a postdoc position up at the University of York, I became quite interested in memory precision. So not just whether or not you remember a specific event or a specific word in a study list, for instance, but how precisely you remember it. So um, and, and the easiest way to think about this is, do you rem how precisely do you remember locations? So if I showed a, a picture of a car um, in a car park, um, and then three weeks later, I showed you a picture of that same car park, but without the car in it. How precisely in that image could you kind of go in with a, with a pen and circle the location of that car? Is it the case that you know our, our, the, the, our preci the precision with which we can localize that, that car in space kind of um, uh, decreases or degrades in time? And if, if so, what, what kind of um, does that decrease in memory precision uh, tell us about how the brain is storing that information. Um, so this interest in memory precision, uh, as a result, we I developed a, 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 um, a toolbox for analyzing um, uh, uh, memory, the, the, uh, memory precision data or data that's gained from uh, experimental tasks that are looking at these questions. How, do our, how does memory precision change with time? Um, uh, other toolboxes, since I started working on it, other toolboxes have been developed and I probably are better than mine. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't necessarily use, so recommend use any, anyone uses this, the data, the toolboxes that I have used, although there are some nice ideas in there. Um, uh, but, but that's, that, that was, at the time I was working on it, it was a fairly big thing for me uh, to, to, to work on that. Um, I, very weirdly actually, while I was up in this job in York, um, at the University of York, uh, working on this memory precision study, uh, we decided that you know we needed to collect a lot of data. You know, about 400, 500 people uh, actually ended up being you know the data from 600, 700 people in fact. Um, but um, in order to do that, you know, there was no way that I was going to have time to test each one of these people individually. So uh, at we uh, decided to run on a series of online studies instead. Um, and this was before the pandemic. So this was, this was too, well, this would have been 2017 to 2019. Um, um, I was um, running this, the, the, these online studies. And um, uh, that was very useful. I was developing my own kind of um, uh, ways of, of of deploying research experiment, uh, experiments um, online on, on, on the web. Um, and um, uh, so I developed experiments for specifically the research questions that we were interested in. Um, and that was very useful because uh, come 2020 when the pandemic hit and none of us could test participants in person, um, I had already had this experience of making online experiments um, and deploying them to large numbers of people, um, which was which was really handy when I when 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 you know when we could no longer test people in person. 
Um, other, I, I, so I've always found uh, that I guess whenever you do doing a research project, you'll always come across things that you need to do uh, that maybe haven't been done before or uh, they have been done before, but they are not, uh, they, they're not they've been done in a, not a very intuitive way or uh, the tools that have been required to, to do those things have it, aren't accessible to you. So you've got to come up with a way of, 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 of doing those things yourself. And, um, uh, you know, during my PhD and postdoc, there have been quite a few things that, uh, tools that I've needed to develop uh, for my own research, um, particularly in processing fMRI data. Um, and it's nice uh, and, and it feels good to, once I've developed those, to put them on the open science framework or, 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 my, or my website. So I've got a few different things that I, I will share with other people um related to processing data processing um uh if if i think they're going to be useful to other people um so yeah random snippets of of code and things like that um and and um notebooks with ideas that have helped me in understanding a a particular thing um so yeah those those are the kinds of applications i guess i share with other people um, so virtual reality environments are increasingly being used by neuroscientists to stimulate natural events and social interactions, but how has it complemented your own research? Yes, I did a couple of projects that involved um, uh, stimuli uh, that were either that, that were directly taken from a, uh, constructing a virtual environment in a game engine um, or they, they, the actual experiments ran in the game engine themselves. So um, one of the one of the experiments that I did, um, we were very lucky to to collaborate with some some researchers who had already run um, a a similar sort of task um, in in a previous uh, study. But um, the idea was that we wanted people to learn the locations of various different objects in this in this 3D virtual world um, and recall those, um, the locations of those objects um, um, uh, repeatedly. Um, so uh, the idea is that they would kind of get better and better with learning. Uh, 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 they would be able to locate these objects more, pre- more and more precisely. Um, and uh, uh, we used a, um, a, 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 a very commonly and free to use application for building these virtual environments and, and um, uh, uh, kind of running them in the scanner so participants could, they could see this virtual world and they could use buttons to navigate around um, and make their responses. Um, and also I found in, in, in another project that I did as, as part of my PhD, um, I, I found that, um, it didn't require a fully immersive virtual environment to answer the research questions that we were uh, we were interested in. However, it, it definitely put using stimuli from this three D virtual world rather than just simple line drawings on a screen. It made the task a lot more immersive and engaging. And um, uh, as a result of that, participants definitely 
paid more attention. They were more motivated. They were mm. more motivated to um, uh, to engage with the task and do it well. So for context, it was a it was a in this task we were it was a reinforcement learning task. So participants had a series of rules that they had to learn um, by um, uh, kind of trial and error. Uh, so they had it was a trial and error learning task. And uh, the stimuli were well. The task was in this uh, in this virtual environment where they the participants had to learn um, uh, the location of this this pot of gold repeatedly and, and kind of try and earn as much gold as possible. I could have done this though with like I guess uh, a, a tick on the screen, <laughs> a noise. Yeah. You've got this trial correct, but you know there was definitely something about participants having to earn a pile of virtual gold, even though it conferred no advantage to them, that made them motivated. And we definitely saw, it was an fMRI experiment, and we definitely saw um, uh, kind of the reward network light up when people were, were, were doing well at the task. Um, and I, I suspect, although I don't know, that, you know, that kind of reward motivation, that the, 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 the regions, I mean, I'm committing this reverse inference, I'm saying that people were motivated and rewarding because we found areas of their reward network light up. It's, I have no real justification for saying that, but I, I believe it to be true. Um, and, you know, I don't think that we would have seen those same effects if, uh, if people were just uh, given feedback by saying, oh, you've got this correct. I think that there was something more motivating about having this experiment run in a virtual world than just uh, simple line drawings on a on a, on a white screen yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Okay, so my um, final question is, if you could give one piece of advice to prospective PhD applicants, what would it be? Um, that's a really good question. Um, what would it be? Do what you really enjoy, and and I would I would say, do what you really enjoy, and have a well-defined research on every on every project that you embark on continually ask yourself is this something that i believe in is it something that i really want to know the answer to you know is there is there is it doesn't matter about you know i mean it does matter what other people think of course and you're, you know your, your supervisors and the people around you are are, are, are good gauges of uh, a, a, good, a good way, a good people to bounce ideas off and, and, and develop these things. However, I think it really has to, a research idea, it has to, the best research ideas and, and research projects that I've done have always come from questions, research questions that I really, really want to know the answer to. More, actually, that I am convinced I already know the answer to them. Yeah, so the, the most interesting data that I've got has been when I, I'm, I'm convinced that I know this thing that other people don't know, um, and I just want to prove it to everybody by collecting this data. Yeah. And I swear that, the, honestly, the, this is honestly the truth. I'm wrong most of the time. <laughs> I've never been right about one of these burning, you know, one of these, I've been very, uh, I have, I've had, sometimes I've had a lot of, a, a high degree of confidence yeah. in... Uh, a, a particular idea that I've had um, and you know I've done the experiment try and prove myself right and say hey we had this hypothesis and look we were right and actually it was it ended up not being the correct idea 
um, but in a very interesting way. Um, and as a result of that, it's been useful. And these mm. people often think that, you know, when you hypothesize something that turns out not to be true, the, 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 the data and the, 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 the uh, everything behind the experiment isn't publishable, that's just not true. Um, uh, don't dress it up, I would say, in, the, in those situations. If, you know, if your hypotheses turned out not to be false, say that we made these hypotheses and they were wrong and we've shown that they were that categorically you know you might need to collect a lot of data you might need to do bayesian inference to show that your you know your your you, you can your hypotheses aren't supported you know there are multiple ways in which an experiment can't work but um you know if you have this uh, if you have a a a, a, a hypothesis that just didn't work out. I think that's still very interesting because it's very likely that other people would have think, thought like you and you're definitely going to be contributing something to science by saying, hey, we had this hypothesis and, and actually it didn't yeah. turn out. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the um, the podcast. It's been really interesting. Thank, thank you. you very much for having me. It's been really, really, it's a pleasure talking uh, uh, to you about this stuff. <laughs>